Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk about Ben Bridge and Pandora, Tucson Gem Shows, and predictions for the year. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK jckonline.com still here in los angeles and i'm with rob bates news director of jck and jck online and i'm still here in new york city very cold extremely cold new york city well happy new year to you first of all and happy new year to everyone listening i realize if you listen to larry david and curb your enthusiasm january 7th may be the last day you can legitimately tell people happy new year according to some rather grumpy rules but i think we can extend this into the second week of the new year so yeah it's great to chat with you and i know i've heard you guys have been under a deep freeze is it snowing or is it just you know it snowed one day but it's mostly just really really cold well it is january I mean, you know, the events I was due to actually, so we're taping this on uh, the week I was due to fly in for the Gem Awards and the 24 Karat Dinner, which of course were postponed until mid-March. So I would have been in New York this week. And when I heard they were postponed, I was disappointed, but I clearly understood why and thought it was a very good move on the part of all those organizations to move their events. But, you know, secretly, I wasn't all that sad because January is kind of a terrible time to be in New York. It's definitely not my favorite month to visit because it is always so dang cold. But of course, this winter is especially tough given the raging Omicron variant. I read somewhere somebody was referring to it as like something you might hear in a Tom Clancy novel or Jack Ryan, you know, the Chronicles of Omicron or something. Honestly, it does sound like some sci-fi adventure that none of us want to be on. How's it feeling in New York City? I think there's a sense of inevitability that most people are going to get it. We haven't gotten it, fortunately, yet. But then again, there's numbers that it's peaked, which doesn't mean that it's gone because it just means it's on the way down, which has certainly been kind of how it's been in other countries that we've seen that it kind of leads to this sudden rush of infections and then it kind of goes away. And it's, it's you know, as long as you're vaccinated and boosted and all that stuff, so it's generally relatively mild, uh, thankfully. We get these from our, our school and it used to be you know one case they would shut the school down right one case of covid and now you know for a while every day it was like 10 new cases 17 new i mean like these absurd numbers you know and uh one day we had to give my son two covid tests one in the morning and one at night. And, you know, eight-year-olds don't like things stuck up their nose. I don't particularly like things stuck up my nose either. So um, it's been challenging, but this whole thing has been challenging and uh, a lot of people have had it worse. My son's school this week is, or his class in particular, is is not able to attend because of a possible exposure. I'm not worried because it, for reasons I won't go into, it doesn't sound too threatening, but I feel like we're all pretty old hat at this, you know, like how many surges have we been through? I've kind of lost track. It feels like we know the drill by now, you know, the cases spike and certainly they spike in a way that nobody's ever seen. I think I noticed on the New York Times site today that there were over 760,000 new cases. And mind you, that must be an underestimate because a lot of people are testing at home. So maybe a million or more, who knows? It is staggering, but I suppose it does give you the sense that, you know, the faster they rise, the faster they fall. So we're all hopeful on the backside of this that it'll come careening down and we'll all be back to like summer of 21. Isn't it funny that summer of 21 is my like highlight, the best time we've had this whole pandemic? 
And it was only like three weeks in the summer of 21. There were nice weeks, mind you. It was like, okay, three weeks, I'm easing into this, okay? And then it's like, okay, it's over, goodbye, you're you're back at home. I mean, they were blissful. I managed to get out to Montauk and party in Montauk for a couple of days. And honestly, I look back at that, I think, wow, that was well-timed. So anyway, we don't have to linger on this, given that we're not epidemiologists or virologists or MDs. But yes. One thing I've learned is that with this thing, you definitely have to hope for the best and prepare for the worst because it's um, definitely defied expectations in a lot of ways. We're just muddling through it. In terms of defy expectations, that phrase is actually ringing in my head, but for a different reason. I got an email today. Well, a lot of people got an email. It wasn't a personal email from Abe Sherman, CEO of the Buyer's Intelligence Group, talking about basically the, the year 21, 2021 in sales. And it was called a December to remember. And I just want to read one quote from that email. And then I want to ask you about a couple of stories you just did that dovetail with what I'm about to say. He said that while there was a very wide range of results from single digits to increases of up to 80% over the previous year, it was true that a majority of retailers over 60% increased sales between 129% to 179% of last year. A stunning result. I mean, mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. We talked about 2020 being a great year for fine jewelry sales, and then 21 comes along and blows it out of the water. So, you know, a gains on top of gains, even though 20 clearly had very difficult conditions and a lot of people had to think very quickly on their feet. But I mean, honestly, I don't know that we'll see another 2021 again anytime real soon. Although I suppose we've been wrong before. We certainly wouldn't have predicted this at the start of the pandemic. And I think, Rob, you can speak to this a lot better. I know you've been sort of deep and entrenched in the numbers, but it is pretty stunning how well this industry has transcended the difficulties and really thrived. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I was talking to Lisa Bridge, who's the president and CEO of Ben Bridge, her family company, and a very nice, warm human being. And uh, she was saying that they've had a great year, a fantastic year, and she would have been happy if that just continued through December. And she said once they got to like the holiday season, she said she tries not to obsessively check the numbers, but of course you do. And she said they were seeing numbers like they couldn't believe. They were just blowing it out of the water, and it was just amazing. And she also said something that I thought was interesting. She said, obviously, the pie is bigger than we thought. I saw that quote. Yeah, I thought that was a great quote and a really, I mean, I'd like you to elaborate on that. Like, what did she mean by that? I, I think that means that there's more people who are willing to buy jewelry than perhaps we expected or, or that, you know, the jewelry market is potentially bigger than we expected. And she said the challenge, which I completely agree with, is how does this become not this anomaly due to kind of this convergence of factors due to COVID? But the question is, how do we make this last? Now that we know that there's all these people willing to buy jewelry and that we can have these kind of rushes and jumps, I do think a lot of it is due to the amount of marriages and engagements and, and things like that. That is probably due a bit to COVID. But how do we take advantage of this and keep it going? And that's kind of going to be the question. And, you know, you hope that people will use the money they've made during this period and, and reinvest it in the business and in modernizing the business and figuring out good ways to uh, go forward. You know, there are some people who are not 
doing well. You know, the same kind of factors that people have been complaining about, you know, are still there as far as competition and online competition and declining profitability. And, you know, if you were in a bad mall, if you were in a mall where traffic was already on the decline, uh, you know, chances are COVID uh, didn't help. So in not every case, it was, uh, you know, fantastic. But overall, it was pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, I imagine there are people out there who are grumbling at this news of how well their colleagues and cohorts in this business did when they perhaps, you know, weren't online or weren't, we're just sort of working out of a small shop expecting business to carry on as usual. So I guess I hate to say it, but I'm not that sympathetic if you haven't really tapped into the ways that which people are shopping today and what they need in terms of all these different, you know, buy now and pay later options or chat bots on your site or just buying online, picking up in store. If, if you haven't grasped all these new ways that people need to be sold to, then, you know, I'm sorry, I suppose it's time for you to probably exit the business. That may sound harsh, but it's just, it's true. There's certainly been holidays that have been mostly bad, but there's always been a few people who did well. And I would say this is a holiday that was mostly good. Of course, there's always going to be a few people who didn't do, do as great. I wanted to also ask you, so you were talking to Lisa Bridge. The story that you wrote was focused on another element of the Ben Bridge business, and it was about their relationship with Pandora. Can you tell me about that? And, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear why you think they are, I guess, divesting themselves of that business. But tell us what you learned and why you think it's happening. It's interesting. First of all, I knew that Ben Bridge had a lot of Pandora franchises, but I wasn't aware of the extent they had 37, which is huge. And they are divesting themselves of them. And uh, she said they're going to focus more on the Ben Bridge business. And apparently Ben Bridge controlled most of the Pandora stores on the West Coast. So uh, you can certainly see why they would be interested in gaining control over them. What, what, what's interesting is, and I think I've I've seen this in a lot of companies that I've watched is that they kind of cycle through different phases. So for a while, Pandora was very big on buying back its franchises, buying back its franchise stores. And that was a big thing for them. And uh, a lot of the franchisees became very nervous because they felt they weren't being supported by the company. And then about two or three years ago, you know, when the company was not doing well and it started this big turnaround, they decided, okay, we're going to let you guys have the, you guys can run the stores. You guys are smart. You guys know what you're doing. Run the stores yourselves, which uh, made a certain amount of sense and is certainly a fair way to do things. And it's certainly from Pandora's uh, standpoint, they have less of a risk, right? Because they're not running the store, so they don't control everything in the store. But now they're doing well again, and now they're starting to perhaps uh, go back and saying, okay, we do want to start taking over some of these stores again and, and start making them our own. So it, it's interesting to see how these things kind of cycle back and forth, but it's certainly a reflection of Pandora's strength currently. And they've also had what they consider a record year and that they've been something that they've never had before. And they've really done, I think, a really good job at bringing themselves back and reestablishing themselves as a consumer name. So they said it was their best year ever. And again, the circumstances were certainly right for it, but I think they were very adept at uh, taking advantage of it. You know, I was also struck by Lisa Bridges' comments about Ben Bridges' growth in the wake of leaving the Pandora business and the focuses on growth. And I wonder if she gave any hints or if you had any thoughts about how Benbridge might grow. I mean, would it be through going a little bit more upmarket or, you know, sort of leaving the, the more commercial side of the business like Pandora and going upmarket? Or would they be acquiring any other businesses? Any, any thoughts on that? 
she was a little cagey. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think uh, she said they're um, they're going to move their flagship. I guess they're reinvesting and redoing a lot of their old stores. And she said they're going to be experimenting with a lot of things, which is always good to see. They're owned by Berkshire Hathaway, which is a, a very good owner, but they do obviously have to show certain results and, uh, you know, stay profitable. And uh, I would guess this is giving them a decent amount of money to play with and to see what they can do with and, you know, to really focus on, you know, making Benbridge more of a household name, you know, in, in its markets and raising his profile. And I mean, there's a lot of things they can do. I mean, it's now down to 37 stores, which I'm used to it being 80 or 90 stores. So that's not a huge amount by their their historic standards. But we'll just have to see. I mean, you know, it's a extremely well-regarded jeweler and, and operation. So I think they're going to just be trying different things. You know, it's kind of what everybody needs to do is to really think about what's the future going to look like? What's the future of the jewelry market going to look like? And, and where do we go from here? If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. You had another big story about another big chain also, Robbins Brothers. What's the news there? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a 15-store chain that used to be family-owned, and then it was owned by private equity, and then it went Chapter 11, and then it was owned by a different private equity firm. And uh, what was interesting, I guess, about this is it was partially a, a management buyout, and it kind of reminded me of what Days Jewelers did last year, which was having kind of a employee, um, becoming employee-owned, so it was kind of an employee buyout. Unfortunately, you know, when you get to a certain size and you're owned by private equity, there's not a lot of exit options. You know, you're a 15 store chain. You're not necessarily going to like heat up uh, Wall Street. Private equity usually has this kind of four or five year window which they want to own you and then they want to kind of unload you and uh, ruin, I mean, uh, own another business. So um, <laughs> they, they didn't know what to do. I mean, they weren't necessarily investing. So they put together this deal, which, which involves employee ownership. There's a lot of debt involved. There's another company, Matri Capital, which kind of caters to the kind of smaller end of the market and is apparently considered as far as private equity, a, a very patient and uh, nice and responsible owner. So it's interesting. I mean, it's always been an interesting chain. It's always been a pretty successful chain. They do mostly engagement rings and they're really good at doing engagement rings and at educating people. And they've actually done a big business in a lab grown lately, which kind of surprised me that they embraced it the way they have, but they've done pretty well with it. And now they hope to expand a little bit more. You know, there are opportunities and I'm sure a Robin's Brothers store in the right market could do extremely well. It's just a matter of being able to have the resources to, to put it up. Just like I'm sure there are certain markets where a Benbridge store would do extremely well. It's just a matter of being able to have the resources to put it up and to establish it. And uh, I think it's, uh, there's the two very interesting West Coast chains, I think, with a very different kind of vibe to them. You know, it's funny, I'm here in LA, and I don't really see either of those, maybe because I'm not a huge mall shopper. So Azusa is somewhere south of LA. It's not a place I know very well. I know that's Robbins Brothers headquarters. And obviously, Seattle's where Benbridge is, and but they do have a lot of, I'm sure, a big California presence. But I don't, I don't really see them a lot in just my day to day shopping out and aboutness. But I'm very aware of both of them. And obviously, Benbridge has such a sterling reputation in the bridge family in general. I'll never forget, actually, 
actually, it was about five years ago, almost to the day, Patek Philippe had a wonderful event with Ben Bridge in Honolulu at their Ala Moana location. And I was lucky enough to be a guest of Patek Philippe in Waikiki, which really sounds... Take me back, please. Just take me back to Waikiki right now, if only. So, you know, those two brands, the fact that Benbridge and Patek Philippe are connected tells you everything you need to know, you know, two amazing companies in this industry that clearly see fit to partner. So it's all good. I mean, it sounds like things are happening and moving and people are, you know, sort of making what sound like wise business decisions about the future of their companies. And I guess it does feel like 2022 for all its complications does seem like a fairly optimistic time to be in jewelry. Yeah. And I, I think when you're talking about these regional middle market chains, I think there aren't a lot of places where they can go. And even, you know, Diamonds Direct ended up being purchased by Signet. The question is, where do they go for funding and for ownership? And I think it's a bit of a challenge, especially when, you know, there's always a challenge with independence passing on the store. And I think it's, it's even a bigger challenge when you have these kind of nine store, 15 store, 20 store, 33 store businesses, you know, who owns them? These middle market businesses, where do they go? I guess these are questions all of us face. Where do we go? On a totally different note, you know where I'm going. Where where are you going? I'm going to Tucson for the gem shows. I'm not scared. You know, I've been reporting these Arizona events that are coming up. Obviously, Centurion at the very end of this month, January 29th, opens at a new location in Phoenix at the Arizona Biltmore, which I've not been to, but looks like a really outstanding property. I don't think it was formally designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, but it was done in his style. So it's got this amazing Aztec room that looks like it's got this beautiful dome ceiling. And apparently that's where the registration for the show will be. A really architectural architecturally distinctive place. So I spoke to Howard Hobbin, the organizer of the show, and they're going full steam ahead. They did a very successful show. I believe it was in May last year, later than their usual time frame, And people returned from that event feeling very positive and optimistic. Sales were great. And so they're going full steam ahead. And then the same thing with the Tucson Gem Shows. They are also very much on. Tucson, for those of you who've been, you know, there's the AGTA show in the convention center an enclosed space, but a very giant convention center space. It's not like you feel like the ceilings are, you know, right above your head. You've got a lot of room to maneuver there. And then a lot of the shows in Tucson are outdoors. So those must feel a lot less, you know, challenging to put on. The outlook, I think, is is very good in terms of sales and what buyers will see there. Of course, supply chain constraints are still affecting the gemstone trade. There have been, you know, much less production out of mines, particularly in East Africa, which is a little bit of the gem basket, like the bread basket equivalent of the world. Uh, lots of interesting colored stones coming out of East Africa, but those mines have been, you know, somewhat fallow since the start of the pandemic because a lot of international buyers just haven't returned yet. And when buyers aren't there at the mine to buy the rough, a lot of the miners just aren't motivated to keep digging. So they go back to their agriculture jobs or whatever jobs they can find. So we will see supply constraints and obviously prices rising on quality goods and very much uh, the pearl market also apparently constrained by you know a lack of harvest. So the advice I keep hearing and this 
came from Stuart Robertson, who's the uh, VP of research at Gem World International, publishers of the Gem Guide. His words of advice were, you see something you like, buy it, because it's not really going to be, a, you can't count on it being around, or at least around for the price you're currently seeing it. Prices are due to rise. So if especially on pearls or any of those really special goods that Tucson is known for, those one-of-a-kind spinels, moonstones, emeralds, anything in the very peri color scheme, that blue Pantone color of the year, bluish, lavenderish, purplish color of the year, so tanzanites and iolites and, of course, blue sapphires. It sounds like for those people who do venture to the Tucson Gem Shows, they will be rewarded by having first pick at a lot of goods that won't be around later. I myself am going from the 1st to the 5th of February. It is an annual tradition. We drive from LA. I go with my sister and our dear friend Mark Davidovich, who a lot of people in this business know because he did PR for a number of jewelry firms. Tucson's just a, a wonderful place to be in February. And I think a lot of people, given the strength of the business over the holiday and over 21, are really in need of restocking. I spoke to David Hakimian, who um, is the founder of DEH Solutions, which works with a number of really hot and cool designers, colored stone designers, some of the best names in the business. And he said his whole, virtually every client he has is going to Tucson, looking for those one of a kinds mm -hmm. that they really need to stock up on after. And they're, you know, they're, their whole directive is really they're going to Tucson to shop so they can have their collections ready for the jewelry shows in Las Vegas in June. So yeah, things are happening. You know, things are very much happening. And I think the idea of going to a trade show or going really any place and everybody wearing a mask, you know, it used to be you'd think it was insane. And now it's pretty normal, at least for me, you know, at least here in New York. You know, I assume a lot of people in Tucson will be wearing masks, depending on, on the situation there. And I think it's not great. It's not certainly something I would choose. But, you know, it's like wearing a tie or a jacket. You just kind of do it. It's just become part of our wardrobe and, and part of the way we live. You know, I'm hopeful that these things that Omicron will die down. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can have some nice events. And March is a bit of a question, but hopefully we'll be able to have the 24-carat uh, weekend. It's a shame. This would have been the happiest 24 karat weekend ever, right? People would have been like so thrilled and drinking and eating, but uh, sadly it's not there, but we'll have it in uh, March and uh, hopefully we'll have it in March. I mean, you never know. Uh, it's going to be another crazy, unpredictable year, but um, it certainly started on a, on a mostly, I would say, positive note. For business, yeah. I, I mean, I'm optimistic. I do think I'll I mean, I'm planning to come in for those events in mid-March, and I'm I'm excited. I think there's a great roster. The Gem Awards has a really incredible roster of nominees, and Stephen Lucier from De Beers is, of course, getting the Lifetime Achievement Award. And I must say, I was invited to sit at their table. I think that invitation still stands, even for the postponed event. So I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm putting all my chips on on it happening. Just thinking about this year and about what to expect that it really it feels like we're at a time when there's just so much going on obviously politically and economically and the pandemic still raging year three but I did this article that ran at the very end of last year and it was in the pro section of the JCK site so behind a paywall it was such an interesting article that I was hoping it might inspire some people to actually subscribe to be pro members because I thought that there was a lot of interesting stuff it was a uh, 22 people across the jewelry industry all answering the same question Question, what is your boldest prediction for the jewelry and watch industry in 2022? And their answers were really interesting and mostly positive, you know, mostly optimistic. The 
there were a lot of people that talked about how this year would be the year that people were judged on their actions, you know, and this idea of greenwashing or whitewashing or ethics washing that we wouldn't put up with that anymore, that you couldn't just say things anymore as a business owner. You had to show that you were acting on them and not just speaking platitudes or empty words. And I think that that's an exciting prospect that we will see people actually acting on the things that they, you know, their ideals. I mean, I think a lot of people, especially in 2020, when it came around to addressing issues of diversity and anything in the wake of the George Floyd killing, you know, of course, everybody meant well. I think they did mean the things they said. Most people did. But it is time here on the brink of two years later to actually make good on those promises. So we heard people talking about that. There were a number of people that talked about the metaverse and about NFTs and about how those would start to figure in to our business, including um, Kent Wong, the CEO of Chow Tai Fook, of course, maybe the biggest retailer in the world. I think there's a maybe a friendly rivalry between Signet and Chow Tai Fook, but a huge presence in China. And he talked about brands proactively exploring the potential in NFT jewelry and digital experiences. The metaverse is an emerging battlefield for new retail. Obviously, that all is still pretty newfangled and futuristic for the bulk of our readership and our listeners. But it's coming. It's coming. And I think we're going to see a lot more interesting conversations about what that means for a traditional store and a traditional brick and mortar presence and what how you might replicate that in the metaverse. It all sounds even bonkers as I say it, but I know it's happening. It's tough to wrap your head around some of this stuff. So I'm taking it slow as far as what I uh, what we do, but maybe I'll see you soon in the metaverse. You bet you get your avatar gutted out in some cool clothes and some cool jewels. Look for me. I'll be the one kitted out in some super digital bling. I'll be the guy with a full head of hair. <laughs> exactly. Yay. That'll be exciting to see. Yes. See you in the metaverse. And uh, once again, uh, wishing everybody a happy Happy, healthy new year, and hopefully we're going to get through all this soon. Amen. All right. Peace. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.